This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This week on the FCPA Compliance Report, I have Mike Lindsay, a partner at Steinbrecher and Spawn in Los Angeles. His specialty is cyber risk and cybersecurity from the legal perspective. So we take a look at that. We also look at e-commerce. We consider how much information you can release internally on lessons learned and what should a company do around ephemeral messaging. I know you'll enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today you're in for a real treat because uh, I think this is the first time I can say this. We have a native Houstonian joining me, uh, Mike Lindsay. Mike, uh, first of all, welcome and thank you for taking the time to visit with me. Well, thanks for having me, Tom. So, Mike, uh, you're a lawyer and we don't get too many lawyers on this podcast, but you had some really innovative ideas, stories and uh, techniques that I thought would really help compliance practitioners uh, so with that introduction, could you tell us a little bit about the nature of your practice and, and what it has been over the years? Well, sure. I'm not a litigator. I'm a business transactional and counseling attorney. Uh, I was in a very large international law firm for many years, and I'm now in a boutique firm in Los Angeles. My practice, though, has remained largely unchanged. I help businesses expand and flourish through a variety of different techniques, M&A transactions, technology development and deployment and product distribution, including through franchising. My focus is on technology companies, consumer products companies, and companies involved in the distribution of technology, as well as consumer products and services. Because Los Angeles is no longer truly a headquarters city, my client base is generally small and medium-sized enterprises, uh, so-called SMEs, many of whom have no in-house counsel and therefore turn to me for outside general counsel work including all sorts of compliance-related matters. So, Mike, uh, you've done work in a variety of areas, obviously from the legal perspective and the business transactional perspective, but it struck me that the compliance professional could learn, I think, uh, some lessons from how you would think through helping either an in-house general counsel or a company without a general counsel think through some of the, uh, the areas of your practice. So I wanted to maybe visit with you about e-commerce structuring, new media development, and then the always ubiquitous issue of business ventures, whether it be co-branding, alliance, and other marketing arrangements. If you got a call from a company and said, could you help us think through from the legal perspective, what do we need to think about for some of these issues? Maybe we could explore how uh, the compliance practitioner might use your process going forward. Sure. Well, let's let's take uh, as an example e-commerce structuring. Uh, I would review with a client the number of different ways in which you could blend e-commerce functions into an existing business, typically a bricks and mortars business. And you know there are a variety of different ways you could either for the new new client uh, go online only. Uh, the only way to see the products and services is online. An alternative would be essentially mail order, a transactional website, plus a, a, a printed catalog, in essence, and possibly a handful of physical stores. A third alternative would be what I would call bricks and clicks. That's where you have lots of physical stores plus an e-commerce website. 
uh, a variation of that would be boutique bricks and clicks. A pretty small number of, of uh, physical locations, one or two, plus an e-commerce website. Then uh, I, something I would call mainstream piggyback, where you use the likes of Amazon, eBay, or another existing e-commerce platform to market the products, but with no website of the company's own, or a niche piggyback, where uh, you get gather together with sellers of similar products uh, and sell your products, like uh, Etsy, uh, which is doing booming business during COVID, Hotels.com, LateRooms.com, and other uh, places like that that bundle uh, uh, products and services, or a full multi-channel. You use you know, multiple physical locations, catalogs, e-commerce, everything. That's the most complex, requires disciplines uh, or people in many different disciplines, and it's pretty much the most difficult to achieve. And what we do is we help clients uh, think through which structure would be best for their operation and then help them navigate the legal and business issues related to adopting that sort of structure. So that's e-commerce structuring, and uh, others are are complicated as well, but I thought that was worth focusing on just a little bit. Mike, in an e-commerce structure, is it simply a one-way uh, flow of information, i.e. sale of a product or uh, distribution of information about a product to a consumer? Or is there information coming back to the company, almost a two-way flow of information? Well, in many cases, yeah, there's a two-way flow of information. And in virtually all cases, there's at least some flow of information. For example, the company collects personal information from visitors to the website and certainly from people who enter into transactions with them that collect the personal information, including the name, address, email address, telephone number, uh, credit card information, shipping address, if different from uh, the credit card address. All those sorts of things are flowing into the company. There may be other information, user-generated content. Uh, is big on some sites, but that's typically not the sort of e-commerce site that we're talking about here. Mike, you're in, uh, as you identified yourself, you were in California. Does that type of conversation on an e-commerce site lead to a discussion or even counseling around uh, the California Consumer Privacy Act? It certainly does. This is uh, something that has been uh, frustrating to the uh, businesses in California because we um, have a, a, a new act that went into effect in January of this year. The regulations for that were not written until uh, and released until August. However, enforcement of the statute started in July. Uh, we have on the ballot this fall a new Consumer Privacy Rights Act that would change and expand the existing statute. And this is terribly confusing for many uh, small to medium-sized businesses. Big companies obviously have their own departments with a, a separate privacy officer and that sort of thing. But the small businesses don't. They don't have those kind of resources. And just keeping up with the flow of information and how to deal with it is pretty complex. So we help counsel the clients and share their frustrations. Uh, and you've probably been seeing lately that more and more companies are advocating for a national uniform standard for privacy practices so that you don't have the proliferation of uh, kind of invasive regulations such as California. Now several other states are proposing as well. So one of the things I find interesting about that is exactly your last point. And in large part, it's the business community, which is 
not only leading this discussion, but also leading the discussion around some sort of national or uniform standard. Uh, we don't seem to see that from the top down from, from Washington, obviously, for a variety of reasons. Um, it, it, is the business community really trying to bring, a, if not a unified voice, at least uh, some sanity and clarity to the discussion, in your opinion? Yeah, well, sanity and clarity are not really the key words in this practice area. So um, I, I think that uh, uh, there, there are many different goals being achieved or sought to be achieved by the various privacy laws. And businesses really are saying, stop. We need, we need some coherence. Why do I have to comply with 50 different state data security breach laws if there's ever a data security breach? Why do I have to worry that the new Oregon statute is going to be different than California's? Why do I have to worry that the Massachusetts statute has different requirements than California and New York do? This is just mind-bogglingly complex, but... There are other sectors where we have a variety of state statutes as well. So business has learned to deal with it, but it's sometimes painful to deal with it. What impresses me is that you see big companies like uh, Microsoft and Facebook stepping up now and saying, we need a clear standard for our, our behavior in this area. And hopefully that voice will resonate elsewhere, particularly in the halls of Congress. Let me change the focus just a little bit, because one of the key messages we continue to receive from the U.S. Department of Justice is that uh, when an incident occurs, a company, of course, has to investigate it. They need to do a root cause analysis. Mm -hmm. They need to take the information they've learned from whatever the violation may be, all the way from a legal violation to a policy violation and everything in between, and remedy that situation. But one of the steps that uh, tends to give lawyers like myself who have sat in a general counsel's chair some pause is the need to um, publicize that internally and use that uh, not only as a lesson to be learned for remediation, but communicate to employees inside of an organization, this is what can happen if you do X. Um, is that a, a question or an issue that you have to counsel some of your employees on? And if you do, how do you help them think through that? Carefully is the short answer, but the the uh, what you're describing is uh, what what many people refer to as a near miss. Uh, in aviation, we know what a near miss is. It's when two aircraft come very close to each other but don't actually collide, and that's the subject of all kinds of reporting requirements. Uh, many of them public, and as a result, uh, you know people get nervous about flying. In business, a near miss is some kind of unplanned event that had the potential to cause serious harm, but didn't actually result in uh, human injury, environmental damage, property damage, or uh, uh, any kind of serious interruption to normal uh, operations. Uh, documenting these things and sharing them with employees uh, can be useful to help prevent a recurrence of exactly the sort of thing that caused the near miss. It's an excellent training exercise uh, and that sort of thing. However, the employee or employees who are involved in the incident, the near miss, are worried about things. They're worried about being blamed for uh, what happened. They're worried about complaints that uh, may be uh, made against them. They're worried about some kind of internal corporate punishment. And then from a long-term perspective, they're worried about damage to their reputation and personal embarrassment. 
So these are issues that companies have to deal with. Uh, then, as you pointed out, there's also a concern from the legal department as to creating this huge repository of discoverable information about ways that uh, the company has maybe not behaved according to its normal standards and let something happen that could have resulted in serious uh, damage. Because if a subsequent event does result in serious damage, that repository of information is going to be discoverable and could be potentially uh, catastrophic in litigation. Uh, Let me change the focus uh, once again. Uh, I think uh, you've talked about how part of your practice has evolved now to cybersecurity, cyber breaches, data privacy. Um, So I wondered if I might visit with you for a few minutes about data breaches and how companies uh, can deal with that. Uh, So what do you, or I guess, what are some of the key issues you see when responding to a data breach? Well, first, Tom, I have to say happy uh, data security, uh, cybersecurity awareness month. Many people listening to your podcast may not know that October is Cybersecurity Awareness Month, but they should put that down on their calendar because it's a pretty important month to reflect on what cybersecurity breaches can do to your business. But the key factor in responding to a data breach is not to have one to begin with. It's to devote the time and effort at the front end in planning to help avoid data breaches What this requires, though, is a lot of work. It requires a detailed analysis of what types of data are being maintained by the company, where that data is located, and uh, how best to keep the data secure. Uh, The FTC has published a set of recommended steps that include uh, several things. Uh, They say take stock, you know, know what kind of personal information you have in your files and uh, on your various computers and servers. Two would be scale down, uh, keep only what you really need for the operation of your business. Three would be lock it, keep it all secure, keep all that data secure so that uh, people can't easily access it. Uh, The fourth would be to pitch it, namely get rid of stuff that you really no longer need as part of the business. And uh, lastly, which is the subject I started with, plan ahead. you got to create a plan to respond to security incidents. Training of employees is key in this area because it's not just an information technology or IT department project. It's something that should be at the core of a company's business uh, to, uh, to focus on risk avoidance and compliance efforts. Then assuming the worst, you need to have worked out in advance a detailed plan as to how to respond to any evidence that comes to your attention of a data breach. As they say in Ghostbusters, who are you going to call? You need to establish that right up front. And in what order do you call these people? As I said a few minutes ago, there are now 50 state data security breach laws in effect, some with differing filing and notification requirements. So it's obvious that, and here I have to make a self-interested comment, you need to get a lawyer with some experience in the field to help you develop the protection and response plan. So it's it's an enormous process, but it's something that can't be avoided. Does that counseling that you've just given, uh, are you able to counsel boards of directors? And is, is that a message that boards are now understanding their role as oversight? Uh, yes, they are in many cases. 
uh, particularly for public companies. Public companies have SEC reporting obligations with respect to data security issues, and uh, the private companies, the small and medium enterprises, may not be quite as focused, at least their boards are not. And so uh, the question is, how do you break through that? How do you convince them that this is really an important thing for the company? And the way to do that is to keep telling them about other companies that have been the subject of massive data breaches, ransomware, or other things that are very disruptive to their business and potentially damaging to the brand. In a release of information from the U.S. Department of Justice in June of this year, the department uh, focused on uh, corporate compliance programs for anti-corruption. Um, the DOJ said that corporate, excuse me, chief compliance officers should have access to all corporate data, and if they didn't, a corporation had to explain why. Does this raise any data privacy or data protection issues uh, in your mind? Uh, yes, it does. Uh, and uh, as part of what the company should be doing in planning for data breach, it, it should engage in data mapping, which in, includes looking through the data, uh, where it is, uh, who has access to it, and so forth. It's kind of a variation of the journalistic, the old journalistic uh, questions, who, what, where, why, and when. My concept is what, what kind of data is being maintained? Where is it in the system? Is it in the marketing department? Is it in the warranty department? Where, where is this data? Who has access to it? Why are we keeping it? And why do these people have access to it? And when is the last question. When should we get rid of this? When can we reasonably get rid of it? Uh, and the, that's part of the FTC uh, mantra as well that I mentioned before. So the question is, uh, the chief compliance officer is, why does the chief compliance officer have this? Maybe it's nice for them to have the data, but if they're really just holding it and they're developing this enormous storehouse of information uh, that could be easily hacked, maybe there are better ways to protect it. In any event, there's got to be some security issue surrounding the whole issue of giving the data, the chief compliance officer access to unlimited volumes of data in the corporate system. Mike, we recently saw a Securities and Exchange Commission enforcement action involving regulated industries where uh, pretty senior executives were uh, sanctioned for using WhatsApp or what I would call ephemeral messaging. And in the FCPA world, in the greater compliance world, the Department of Justice has also raised this as a specific concern. How can a company uh, try and think through or, uh, a policy or procedure to capture that type of messaging? Or is it uh, because it's so ubiquitous in the, wor- in the social workplace now? Well, for, for your listeners who may be back in the uh, 20th century, not the 21st, I'll, I'll tell them that ephemeral messaging, which is your phrase, is uh, kind of mobile-to-mobile transmission of various types of messages, can be multimedia messages and so forth, that automatically disappear from the recipient's screen after the message has been viewed. Uh, the word ephemeral describes something that lasts only for a short period of time, The best-known companies in this field are Snapchat, Telegram, Hash, CoverMe, Confide, Wicker, and frankly, uh, typically the messages can be viewed only once. And during the viewing period, the recipient has to maintain contact with the device's touchscreen or the message will just go away. 
So when you apply that to corporate communications, uh, that's that's can be dicey. So uh, these messages are typically encrypted and also typically on an individual person's uh, device, uh, a smartphone rather than a company device. So this automatic deletion makes later retrieval of the communication, particularly if it's a corporate communication, uh, much more difficult through forensic analysis or otherwise. At least arguably, companies should embrace ephemeral messaging. They should say this is terrific because businesses generally uh, uh, generate so much data that any effort to reduce the quantity uh, seems like a good thing to do. Uh, in addition, there is an old information technology maxim that the best way to keep your data safe is not to keep it in the first place. But as you point out, there can be some downsides. The most famous uh, case in this area is the Waymo versus Uber case, a trade secrets theft case that included Waymo successfully convincing the trial judge to issue an order, allowing evidence and argument to the jury that Uber had used self-destructing messages to deliberately conceal evidence that it had stolen trade secrets from Waymo. The case settled after just a few days of trial, so we don't really know what impact that would have had on a a verdict in the case. But as you point out, the Justice Department uh, is kind of leaning on people now and saying that uh, they will receive remediation credit under, under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act only if a company satisfies certain conditions, including, uh, quote, appropriate retention of business records and prohibiting the improper destruction or deletion of business records, including implementing appropriate guidance and controls on the use of personal communications and ephemeral messaging platforms that undermine the company's ability to appropriately retain business records or communications or otherwise comply with the company's Uh, document retention policies or legal obligations. So the Justice Department is pretty keenly focused on this. And as a result, a company's electronic records retention policy should expressly address ephemeral messaging, including, among other things, consideration of any legitimate business reasons for using these apps and requiring that the automatic deletion of ephemeral messaging be uh, uh, disabled as part of a litigation hold once the company has received any kind of notice of potential litigation. Mike, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any additional information on any of the topics we may have touched upon today. Where could they go? Well, obviously, the FTC is a good source of information. It's pretty practically oriented information, good practical guidance, and it's readily accessible on the Federal Trade Commission website. Also, the Justice Department is, uh, was, is a good source for the information we just uh, talked about. There are state privacy protection websites, such as in California. We have the California Office of Privacy Protection. And, of course, you could reach out and touch me. If you just go to our website at steinbreckerspan.com, my name is Michael Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y. I'd be delighted to talk. Mike, this has been a great uh, podcast. I hope that we can continue the conversation. Same here, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I'm pleased to announce that the latest podcast series in the Compliance Podcast Network 
The Wirecard Saga has premiered. Originally, it was on the FCPA Compliance Report, but due to its popularity, I have rolled it into its own podcast series. Subscribe to it on the Compliance Podcast Network. It will be out on iTunes the first week in December, so subscribe to the iTunes version of the Wirecard Saga. We're going to take this as long as we can. I know you'll enjoy it. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.